0: So when people are all replete and, and, and ready to go now, I think it's just a myth that you don't talk to after lunch. <laughs> uh, and uh, but if it's not a myth, it, 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 well, I think the placing of a, a discussion of shi'ya after lunch is. It's a very ingenious actual way of making it. pick up our ears so um, this uh, panel is called Translating the Corpus Lal's remit, ambition and complexity um, I think um, it's important to emphasize complexity and when one thinks about Shidyak I think uh, or when one discovers Shidyak then one discovers complexity of, of, of an extraordinary work of, of fiction, uh, which is an enigma unto itself uh, as to what it is as a work, whether, whether it, generically whether it's a novel or an a autobiography or just a sort of A hyperventilation of, of, of synonyf, synonymification of this. It's an extraordinary work and I think it's very important for us to um, just to underline the fact that the choice <coughs> that this was a, a very early choice, and it was a choice we made with our eyes open, although half shut. Eyes, eyes half shut. I think would be the word, the word of expressing mm-hmm. this, because Shidyaq uh, was a work that I had read about. And, uh, every time I, I reread read uh, the standard literary history, or oh, a standard literary history. So we've all, as students of Arabic literature, students of Arabic just, have in, encountered the title and, and read brief descriptions of Leg and the Leg, but I don't think I had, had ever, before, um, perusing Humphrey's work, I actually had the book in my hands or read any part of it no. And knew very few people who who'd um, actually done that themselves. I think uh, I, um, what's his name, one uh, an Israeli scholar was working on this at some point. Sassan uh, Somer, um, mm-hmm. but he gave a uh, he gave a uh, a conference once up at uh, Columbia where he talked about it and it included a handout. It did strike us as very difficult. So. <laughs> I'm just trying to stress the fact that we, right from the beginning, have encouraged, I think, Humphrey, who, when he came to our first workshop to set up the library, um, suggested doing Shidya. Uh, and then, I'm not sure how familiar he was with the book when he first suggested it, but we said, yes, please, you know, with, with open hands, with open arms, rather, and uh, discovered the book as we went along to be this extraordinary uh, work of fiction. Um, and it's, it struck us as we got to, to know it that it was that we could consider the idea that um, we should set the challenge uh, for the library of Arabic literature to translate the untranslatable, or just think about that notion. So uh, two years ago, we had a panel, actually, where we talked about translating the untranslatable. Um, because if there are works that fit into that s- scheme of thinking, then certainly stuff and *Stuff* is one. And I think that is probably why it hasn't been translated into English uh, until now. Um, the other work we discussed in, in that panel on translating the untranslatable was the uh, Nisarat which, of course, exists, existed in Brackenbreeze rather perfunctory translation but uh, was always considered to be untranslatable in its full uh, in its fullness in its integrity um, we did have to persuade uh, and, and, and professor Schuler to do the integrity of the text and they um, performed this miraculous task of translating the untranslatable whatever that means um, so we've um, I think it's important for us to establish from the beginning that, that we're prepared to, to tackle complex texts uh, 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 among the variety of things that we do. Um, so, that's, in fact, that's what I'm going to just not read from the text or, 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 or say any m- more. I think the best thing is if I hand it over to my <coughs> panellists. Um, we will eventually read from Shadyak some, some excerpts that, that give um, the flavour and the savour of this extraordinary text um, it's, I find it very difficult to talk about this text as, as, you, as you can see because but I do want to, to grasp the nettle somehow and, and, and leave you with some sense of what I, of the sense that I have got out of this extraordinary work, that it's a, a very facetious, sarcastic novel, post pre, uh, pre-postmodern, or however uh, one wants to describe it, um, which is all about um, the authors, Faris al-Sidya, in the first place, he became Faris al obsession with language. His name in the book is Fariak, which can be translated perhaps as the distinctor. The the distinguisher is perhaps not quite right because um, it's too easy. I think Fariak is a a strange word, word. and so I think we need to find a strange uh, English word to uh, convey its equivalent. (coughs) So the, 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 the distinguisher, the distinctor, He's interested in distinguishing between words and meaning, between meanings of words, between um, um, synonyms and acronyms. What the book is made up of is is a series of words, a series of lists of words. Often you have uh, a series of of lists of words copied out of whichever one or other dictionary that he was using. Um, And what? Humphrey has done, has produced a list of words and synonyms from a thesaurus or other that he was using. Um, so what you get in the end is a sort of an, an, a text of El Faria, of shit of Shijak's uh, Saqa uh, with this facetious feeling that, that, that language is being, that meaning is being created. By creating distinctions, shaping meaning between words through a list of synonyms, but also at the same time undermining the, that meaning in the very process of giving synonyms. Because the synonym, if it's not an exact equivalent uh, of another word, then it's destroying the meaning of that, or somehow undermining or shaking the meaning of that other word. If you do that ad infinitum, ad nausea, then you, you get into a sort of limbo area of cognitive limbo which this work um, revels in. It seems to be swimming in a cognitive limbo. And so it's extraordinary that this Arabic that is in a a cognitive limbo, um, where al-Fariyak has created distinctions that that add precision to meaning but actually undermine meaning, and therefore whatever narrative uh, is also being... um, um, conveyed through the text. It's extraordinary that, that it should be possible to do that in English also and that Humphrey has somehow managed to do that. Uh, by by be- becoming his own I mm-hmm. um, so Shidya, one, I, mean, he, I think. So just as Shidhya chose this or I mean he the variety of kamuses I think. So Mahit exclusively okay. I thought it was more okay. I mean he would just without any um, comp- compunction take words out of common hate Humphrey has allowed himself to use a thesaurus so we can uh, we can borrow the sense of treasure that has um, in, 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 its, in its definition thesaurus a treasure a treasure of words. a treasure of distinction a treasure of distinctions that create meaning but undermine it okay. I mean, I know I've been rambling um, a bit like a shitty art. Well, not, not ever so eloquently as a shitty art. I think it's important to do that somehow. I've allowed myself to expose myself to ridicule in order to try and convey <laughs> the fact that I, I'm completely bemused and baffled and, uh, and mesmerized by this work and, and by the f- what uh, Humphrey's done with it. It almost reminds me of the, um, the story of the Gorilla, the, the story of the gorilla that uh, was used in, in a certain uh, for, for a certain production and the gorilla uh, was in fact a pelt of gorilla that was managed by um, a manager and for the production s- someone was engaged to, uh, to put on the pelt uh, but it, during the production because of the lights um, the man suffered Greatly from the heat that was created by the lights and the environment. So during a break in, in sessions, he went off and found an ice pick and, uh, and uh, made 40 holes in the pelt of the gorilla. So when he put it back on, he felt great. By the way, the man inside had his own manager, so you had one gorilla with two managers, the pelt and the man inside. <laughs> but the, the man uh, who owned the, the manager of the pelt said, well, you can't make holes in this pelt. It's ridiculous. So... Uh, he, he objected uh, very violently, took the pelt away and his shoulder went away. So the production team now didn't get to find another gorilla. Uh, and they couldn't find one. They eventually found another man with a pelt, but it was of an orangutan.
1: <laughs>
0: and so they had to engage uh, another person to get into the orangutan, but of course he had to be, an orangutan is half the size of a gorilla. <laughs> So they ended up finding a midget to, uh, <laughs> to play the gorilla. This is a story by Groucho Marx about the, the gorilla in one of his films. It strikes me there's something very Shadyakian about this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Humphrey. I'll my job. So I'm now going to hand over to Humphrey to read okay. a bit. We're going to go Humphrey, Roger, Marilyn, Robin, uh, and then Richard. So okay. this is a... I'm looking forward to this panel. Uh,
2: okay, thank you. As you know, my name is Humphrey Davies and I'm affiliati- affiliated to the American University in Cairo. Um, having heard that wonderful introduction, um, I can only say that my task as a translator was resolutely focused on breaking it down into discrete tasks and tackling them one by one, and not getting, um, uh, not suffering, not sweating it out in a, in a orangutan suit. <laughs> um, the way that I saw the technical challenges for the translator, and there were a number of very specific, specific trans, uh, challenges. The first one is that a lot of the book is in rhymed prose, as are, in fact, many uh, passages of many of the works in this series. But in this case, I think the difference is that Shadyok was very self-conscious about the fact that he was using rhyme prose. And he didn't allow the reader to forget it. Uh, At one point, he says, rhyme prose is to the writer as a wooden leg to the walker. I must be careful, therefore, not to rest all my weight on it every time I go for a stroll down the highways of literary expression, lest its vagaries end up cramping my style or it tosses me into a pothole from which I cannot crawl. Um, that, borne in mind, it would, be, it would be, it is impossible, clearly, for the translator to skirt the issue. So I had to sit down and do as much as I could in the way of simple rhyming. Um, and of course, as everybody who is, well, I will explain for those non-Arabists in this audience, if there are any. Um, that Arabic, by virtue of its grammatical structure, is much easier to rhyme in than English. Arabic morphological classes produce hundreds of words that rhyme. Uh, Of course, in English, we find a simple word like orange that doesn't have a rhyme, um, and and so on and so forth. Um, I think occasionally it can work. um, And I I think it was Matthew this morning who said that he, he felt in the uh, recital, uh, recital, uh that this that this could even be compelling and i'm wondering whether we could work um through this series to int- reintroduce the the, the the use of rhyme prose in english which i think before was maybe only used by euphues in the fifth, in the 16th century though there are more expert people around here who would know they crawl this he's describing um mankind um they crawl only to stumble, climb only to tumble, walk only to lag, labour only to flag, find themselves unemployed only by hunger's pangs to be destroyed. And you can do it, and I know that um, uh, Professor Fagelder has also, has also done it. So I guess my point here is that one shouldn't be too intimidated by, by some of these seeming problems. The same issue comes up with rhyme, of course, uh, in, 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 in verse. Uh, mono because Arabic is so productive of rhymes, monorhyme verse is has been until the late nineteenth century perhaps the um, the standard um, but there's not uh, there just aren 't enough rhymes in um, in English to allow one to uh, to do more, to allow me, and I take on board what Julia Bray said about one can only do what one can do. What I could do in many passages um, of verse was simply to produce them as rhymed couplets. Um, for example, um, and I do intend to stud this um, brief, these brief notes with as many quotations as possible. Um, Shidiok is uh, describing how the Fadi alter ego was working for what was in fact he calls, um, uh, he calls the uh, panegyricum al-manda, the place for praise, <coughs> in fact was the um, Egyptian official gazette, uh, which in his day he saw, at least, as being dedicated primarily to promoting the uh, slavish admiration of the ruler, Muhammad Ali. Um, <coughs> As a worker there, as a translator, the Fayyak receives every day a piece of verse that he has to translate. One of these um, follows the event which is being reported, which is that the um, ruler has, um, has his body shaved. Time's lips parted to reveal a radiant fate. The day our prince took a bath and was rendered depilate. His noble never parts, thus appeared less hoary, and poetry, through his pubes, gained in glory. <laughs> um, not all... not all. Elsewhere... Um, well, perhaps just a little bit more from an elegy on a donkey. His, this, this elegy for a donkey is perhaps the longest piece I was able to reproduce using rhyme at all, and I guess it runs to some... Um, 50 lines in the Arabic. Um, His donkey has disappeared. Um, In his elegy, he calls for it to come back. He says, may every donkey that from willfulness skedaddled, from exhaustion vociferated, from effort balked, or whose mind by must was addled, every lip-twisting sniffer of old she-donkey pee Gone dry as jerky, your answer be. <laughs> you can. I mean, I just want to say that it's it's fun to do and it's worth trying and sometimes it works. In other occasions, the longer verse, I simply had to rely on such nebulous qualities as uh, musicality, uh, alliteration, and that kind of thing. The third issue that's clearly that's often cited and and Philip has already referred to it um, as a as a problem of um, this book, um, and it is a book that has an extraordinary reputation for being untranslatable, um, is, that, is the lists. People are very intimidated by these lists. The lists exist in, there are two types of lists. One is a list in which um, he puts words from which was the dictionary, the first dictionary of reference in his period. Um, down the right-hand side of the page, and then he quotes the translation. He he provides the the, the translation. He provides the definition from that dictionary. Clearly, these don't um, present any great difficulty for a translator because you trans you 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 render the the Arabic word in transcription, um, and then you translate the definition. Obviously, you cannot uh, translate the Arabic word, which is in the right-hand column, because uh, then you would have the nonsense um, of uh, uh, um, an Arabic word, um, uh, an English word being defined by an English definition, but the word is not English. For example, the (laughs) Jessessa right-hand column of the Arabic page, the (laughs) jeserse, left-hand column, a beast to be found on islands that seeks out news and passes it on to the Antichrist. (laughs) (laughs) Or the ruch. And this is a continuing list. Some of these lists goes on, go on for more than 40 pages. The ruh, a large bird that can lift a rhinoceros. Or the Karkadan, a beast that can lift an elephant on its horn. Or the zabar, a beast that carry, can carry an elephant on its horn. Or the akam, a fish or a snake that lives in the sea. The lion comes from the land and whistles on the shore. The akam comes out to it, and they intertwine. Then they part, and each returns to its dwelling. These lists, I think, attract people's attention because there is a, magic, a magical invocation of um, almost an almost surreal um, uh, effect is achieved by these seemingly random words um, provided in large numbers. But the main challenge. Is the other type of list. In the middle of a sentence, you may get a list of words with un- with no definition. They're just words, one word after another word after another word after another word. They're obscure words, they're arcane words, they're words he did not expect his readers to be able to, to, to understand or to know. Um, and they are sometimes grouped um, to in, in clusters of uh, metaphysics, for example, or or, um, or they rhyme with one another, um, but they have an impact which some people have called incantatory, and somebody has even talked about the terror invoked invo- by reading these lists, like the, the sheer unknowability, the sheer flow of, 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 of unknown words. These were the hardest challenge for me as a translator in the book. I started off, I guess, as one would expect, trying to find, d- d- taking each word and, and looking at the definition in the Qamos and reproducing that in English. But I came up with things like <coughs> the pudendum big, the pudendum large, the pudendum swollen, the pudendum huge, the pudendum enormous, the raised thick pudendum and the raised thick pudendum, the pudendum thick of lip, the, vulgar, the vulva huge, the vulva mighty, the vulva long of the clitoris, buttocks the vulva's inner chamber in space the wide and wet one and the bulgy one the big brutish one and the just plain large one and as time went on it seemed to me that this um attempt to achieve a one-to-one translation of words was doomed to some kind of failure because though one might be browbeaten by that flow of words there were occasions in which Well, it could be said, I think, for sure, that even if the English language has 248 words for the pudendum, you can be pretty much certain that those 248 words will not map accurately onto the 248 words to be found in So you get this repetitiveness, which in the end, I think, creates a kind of self, an unnecessary self-consciousness or an unwelcome degree of self-consciousness about the list. Um, So I started experimenting. With other approaches, um, in the middle of one list, <coughs> for example, where he's speaking about um, the charms um, of of women, um, he has. It's one of those lists where you have uh, words on the right and definitions. Oh, Ooh. Um, okay. I in some occasions these are broken by by their antonyms. So you have um, a list such as that. Nadra, a woman i.e., a woman possessed of comeliness and good looks. Then he goes, note, women who are dirty crocodile pigs, shorties, runts, trolls, long-necked pinheads, midges, wide-wood, woofers, waddlers, bitty-butted beasts, scrawnies, and spindle legs are more coquettish and sensual than any of the above. And I took these synonyms from the Urban Dictionary. And I took another one online, the, the, um, which is a wonderful resource for for, for language of that, of that ilk. Um, in another occasion, I took, um, I, I took the, the Arabic words, I put them through the Google Latin Translate facility and came up with words that therefore have some claim to, to reflect to, uh, the meanings of the underlying things, but which are very strange to hear which was the intended effect. So he says lo- later on, note, women who are brevo-terpicular, mango-pinguicular, vasto auricular ignobilar, exigua, deformicular, flaccido-ventricular, flacidic- obesar, rancidular, nigero-malo-incultular, and hyper-rustico-rapacular are more sensual and bolder than any of the ab- above.
0: <laughs> so uh, yeah. sure.
2: that was simply... Um, uh, a brief. Uh, oh, then the final strategy. I'm sorry, I'm going to ignore that for the moment. The final strategy. <laughs> the final strategy that I um, that I adopted um, was yeah. the one that Philip referred to when he talked about the, the thesaurus. It struck me that I, one could do something called representational translation. Take a list of um, the Arabic words, look them up, look up their meanings in the Muslim, <laughs> Go to arrange those in subgroups because they normally fall out into subgroups go to the thesaurus, pull out all the words in English, rearrange those in groups that have some internal um, logic, and then um, uh, present that as a representational uh, um, translation. And because I think the reader has a kind of expectation of a literalness, which this obviously does not um, serve, in every single case, I noted it in kind of terms of, you know, truth in advertising. I kn- footnoted that this was a representation rather than a uh, translation. Um, so, for example, um, she, he, she, 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 uh, he, he says to proceed. The man has numerous charms that women do not. These include the breadth of his chest and the pelt that's on it. The height of his shoulders and the capacity of his breast, the straightness of his legs and the thickness of his arms, and the number of muscles in them, the massiveness of his hands, and the fact of his, fact of his being strong and hard. Kawi wasdid I took looked up Kawi, I looked up Shadid. The rest of the synonyms that follow are all synonyms of Kawi and Shadid so the fact of his being strong and hard, energetic, vigorous, forceful, active, vital, lively, brisk, lusty, robust, robustious, robustuous, robustious, robustious rumbustious, metalsome, present, potent, stout, sturdy, stalwart, rugged, hale, hearty, husky, flush, able, able-bodied, active, athletic, energetic, energetic muscular, stark, staunch, strapping, doughty, well-built, ripped, buff, diesel, bis, beast, built, cut, jacked, shredded, yoked out, fine-looking, and loud-mouthed. <laughs> None of which, exactly. Will you know? Will you? None of which are intended to represent on a one-to-one basis the Arabic butcher. Hopefully, convey an impression of what the Arabic uh, does for the reader. So I will stop there, except for one thing, which is I want to say <laughs> that despite all these pyrotechnics, we must never forget that this book actually was not just about being clever, and that it's one of the most intellectually engaged. It's one of the most um, surprisingly modern sensibilities that I've come across in Arabic literature that he talks of, and if I had time, I would have read, a nice, he talks about um, uh, human rights, he talks about um, the stupidity of uh, trying to persuade people to your point of view through violence. Um, he talks about his fears, or his, wife, his wife's infidelities, his fears his wife's fears for his infidelities, his fear of erectile dysfunction. All these things are also in the book. It's not just about word games. Thanks.
1: Not Roger Allen but I'm going next because I'm also speaking about um, leg over leg. My name is Marilyn Booth and I'm currently a colleague of Phil Kennedy's um, at uh, the Abu Dhabi Institute at NYU in Abu Dhabi but I'm very soon to be joining the faculty here and I'm looking forward to working with my new colleagues at Oxford. Um, My work focuses on 19th and early 20th century Literature, on gender history, um, book history, and translation studies. And of course, these are all areas that are completely um, relevant to Lal and and mean that Lal is is very relevant to what I do. And the first thing that I would say, um, as somebody who is passionate about the 19th century, um, I'm delighted that Lal, from the start, has very much embraced the 19th century um, as. As part of its um, remit, I think that's really important. Right now, there's somewhat of a 19th century turn, I think, in literary studies, modern literary studies of the Arab region and also the Turkish and Persian regions. And you know, this is an era, a time, a period, the 19th century, that until recently was seen as something of a dead letter. Um, and I think now that's changing. Well, it is changing um, wonderfully, and it's very important that Lal is open to um, to um, works from that time because there are many, many works of wonder from that period to, to read and explore. Um, I think that one can address Lao's remit, ambition, and complexity, which we were asked to do, by considering Shidyak's remit, ambition, and complex- complexity because it struck me as I was reading it that in a way, leg over leg is sort of a prescient blueprint for Lao's project. Um, I think in a sense, Yak's 19th century work seeks to celebrate and revive its own humanistic and linguistic prehistory um, by rereading that history and it's rereading also its own moment of production and reception. And I think Lal is, in a very ambitious way as well, trying to do that. And just some ways in which I think leg, and, leg over leg does this, and I think probably the same could be said of what Aisa told us, Um, and this actually reprises some of the themes that came up this morning, Um, it it, um, obliges us to think about the originality of authorship in the 19th century very much as something that arises from 19th century authors' respect for and rethinking of the earlier corpus. This was a very, very important um, part of what was going on in the 19th century, and it's very much part of... Shidyak's work, and of course this is both about paying respect to tradition, but also about kind of sending it up in certain ways and satirizing it. Um, I think also um, um, it very much forces us to think about where is the modern in modern, and that some of the things we think of as modern actually have been around for a very long time, and I think Shidyak really confronts us with that wonderful reminder in two particular ways, um, which one might call gender consciousness and genre consciousness. Um, therefore, modernists, of course, need to read the medieval and vice versa. We do do that. It's a very pleasurable task. But Lel facilitates it great, uh, greatly. And those of us who teach this period, I think, too, are grateful for the, the resources <coughs> that that um, gives our students. Um, leg over leg, like Lel, um opens the reader to radical new possibilities in thinking across boundaries, temporal, geographic, generic, linguistic, so forth, in many ways. And I think in a way, leg over leg is is actually about the various kinds of translation that go on inside of what we think think of as a monolingual text. Um, And so in a way, it's a meta-commentary on translation as both a mundane act of survival and as a kind of cultural spectacle, as something that we all engage in all the time. Um, I want to just try to draw out uh, really one of the spectacular ways in which Shidyak's work embodies some signal preoccupations of both his time and of ours um, that are also key elements in any act of trans... that is a key element in any act of translation, which is that of the question of gender as both something that is semiological and social, that creates divisions, but that also represents mutable divisions. And as you've already heard, um, there is a lot about gender in this in this book. Um, in the fourth volume of this work, the female lead Alfariaqia complains to her husband that, quoting, what I think is just a, a is just a magnificent translation. I'm just I'm full of wonder and admiration for the, for the work that Humphrey has done on this. So she says, all I hear from you is your voice as on it drones, counting off rhymes, and speaking of trenches and firestones, campsites half erased, and concealed women in camel litters raised. And when you sit down to eat, you bring your book with you, and for every plate you consume a page. Then you eat a morsel and read a paragraph, or you drink, belch, and recite a line." End of quote. So here, al Priya, I think, briskly encapsulates the word passions and the sensual predilections of her co-hero. And I think she does quite a good job, in fact, of summing up the book's content and embodying its procedure. By the time they reach this scene, Shadyak's readers are already well aware of how wildly Al-Fariyaq's habit of muttering veers, but also how his lexical madness bespeaks a certain kind of method. And I think... It's significant that the tome itself begin, the work itself begins with a series of near synonyms, meaning to shut up, and then also to listen. And this initiates a very playful, critical monologue, which is actually a dialogue, and it's a very, very dialogic work, dialogic both with characters in the text and with readers, um, sort of outside the text. As has been noted by those who've studied this work. Um, is a revolutionary text, not the least in the arena of gender politics. Its narrator envisions a reconfigured understanding of relations between the sexes based on recognition of equal intellectual abilities and mutual needs, on listening rather than on the rules of patriarchal hierarchy, and on a thorough reconceptualization of marriage practices. Rather than being couched in the rhetoric of the time, This program emerges through dialogues between wife and husband. Therefore, the work is actually enacting what it's also thematizing. And I think this is extremely significant. The work undermines gender stereotypes by confronting them. For example, women's talk, which at the time and later was the bane of many reformist men who seemed to see gossip as something that was both useless and dangerous. And that was, in fact, a kind of national catastrophe here becomes a source of knowledge. So gossip is completely reconfigured. Friends, also, um, the work explicitly demolishes the argument that girls' education will corrupt females. And in fact, the corrupted educated people in this work are men, and most often they're men of the religious establishment. So this is another way in which he completely overturns um, expectation. Now, as you already know, from Humphrey's wonderful presentation, this work also diverges from most 19th century discourse on gender relations with its robust celebration of sex and sexuality, demonstrating the fecund vocabulary of Shadyak's native tongue for the description of body types, parts, and pleasures. As Humphrey notes in his um, afterword, I think, one of the most difficult tasks that the translator of this work faces is that of rendering puns and illusions, and sometimes even of recognizing those puns and illusions. Um, and the translation, of course, is just every bit as amazing and delightful as the original. Um, this may not have been one of the most taxing passages to render, but one of my favorites is El Feriaque's and El Feriaque's Parley on people's varying attitudes to optimal frequencies of sexual intercourse. And I quote, As to the number of times, some people are Unitarians, some are dualists, and some are Trinitarians. And some, I said, are Muatazilites, and some are Muatilites. The last, she said, are without redeeming qualities. So I think hinged on the twin themes of language and gender as a work of its time, but also as a work before its time, leg over leg urges a a comparative, open, carefully critical and sometimes also irreverent assessment of other societies. And I think that one could say the same of any serious translation project. Intertwined with this is an ongoing critique of preconceived notions of eloquence, what eloquence means in writing, speech, and debate. And of course, this also acts as a defense of Shidyak's own peripatetic, exuberant, polyphonic mode of discourse. You know, when you start... Writing and speaking about shidyak, you fall into this somehow I have to use four (laughs) adjectives where normally I might use one. So thank you very much.
3: Cresswell. Uh, I teach comparative literature at Yale University. Um, and uh, I want to consider uh, briefly necessarily schematic terms. Uh, Shadya, as a, as a translator and a transmitter uh, of the Arabic literary past in order to suggest how he might also be seen as um, a contemporary of his European peers, uh, but maybe also a harbinger of things to come. And here I'm sort of echoing what Marilyn just said about the notion that Shidjak can um, can serve as a kind of model for the remit of of LAL itself, and I think that's very true. So, in her very fine and uh, comprehensive introduction to Humphrey's very fine translation, Rebecca Johnson uh, she situates Shidjak's Sak alasak as an exemplary text of the Nahda, um, and goes on to say that quote scholarship has tended for many years to emphasize the innovative aspects of the period, most notably the introduction of European genres and styles, and to sideline works following classical models, as well as works such as leg over leg that fall between the two. And it's very true that until recently, um, scholarship on Shadyok, in English but also in Arabic, in fact, um, centered on this question of how much he was influenced by uh, European writers Voltaire and Rabelais, Swift and Stern, and perhaps Stern, most of all whom, whom Shidyak explicitly acknowledges as somebody he's read and is interested in. Um, and this search for sources, European sources, uh, it strikes me as a way of mitigating the novel's essential strangeness. And since my own uh, aim here is kind of to highlight that strangeness, I want to just begin by pointing out very Briefly, what seems to me an important formal difference between the Sok and, and Tristram Shandy, and this difference has to do with the manner of digression, uh, which is equally pronounced um, in Shidyach as it, as it is in Stern. Um, my work is digressive and progressive, too, and at the same time. That's Stern, but it could have been, it could have been um, a Shadyach. But in Tristram Shandy, uh, so every, basically every narrative event in that novel becomes a kind of excuse uh, for shoveling in the backstory, so that the main event of the protagonist's birth is delayed notoriously for hundreds of pages. Um, in Shadyat's novel, on the other hand, and, I, and I, would, I would call it a novel, I hope we can talk about what, what its genre is, um, and, and calling it a novel is obviously a kind of loaded term, but, but Shadyat's novel hews very closely to the the life of its hero and I would say that its digressions are philological rather than contextual which is to say that um, the plot detours pivot on a word or a phrase that calls for explanation so when a faryak uh, falls in love with the daughter of the emir we get um, kind of eight pages uh, on, on the eight stages of love and, and the names for each and in fact, everything that happens in the story becomes a pretext for lexical interpretation, which must be, then be interpreted in turn. So it's this kind of Talmudic uh, perpetual motion machine. Or as Shadyach writes, la labuddha l'ahu min hashiya. So every commentary must have a super commentary. So in other words, what I would say is that Shidyaq figures himself as the philologist of his own novel. And this is not the only place in the novel where he or he pays homage to philologists. Um, mm-hmm. That company of men that rendered their reputations white by covering pages in black, as he writes in the first book. And, and indeed, the whole novel is a kind of, I think, philological fantasia or archaeology of Arabic. And it is, of course, one of the marvels of, of Humphrey's, Humphrey's English that he manages to convey in a foreign language the virtuosity of this performance. Um, and since lexicography is one of the great pleasures of this text I can't help mention three of my, my own favorite words that Shadyop and Humphrey have taught me. baḥsala, uh, which is a verb meaning to remove one's clothes and gamble with them. Samut, uh, which is a woman with legs so thick that her anklets make no sound. <laughs> which is a compliment of course. And Hinde, which is a children's game in which they gather and then say this word and any who mispronounces it has to stand on one leg and hop seven times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chidjart calls leg over leg a repository for every idea that appealed to me, relevant or irrelevant. And in reading it, one's often reminded, I think, of Flaubert's description of Bouvard and Pecuchet as an encyclopedia in the form of a farce. Um, and as in Flaubert's novel, I think one has to say, it can be Difficult to distinguish between the critique of pedantry and an example of it. Um, and I think this ambiguity <coughs> Humphrey must know much more intimately than anyone else. Um, I want to emphasize, though, that Shidyak's extravagant love of words is not an antiquarian pursuit. He pays homage to the tradition of philology. He casts himself as a philologist, but he adapts it to contemporary needs. And the, so the word lists and digressive commentaries are not simply ways of showing off his mastery of the language, but they are also essays and social criticism. So his opening list of dirty words, for example, dozens of pages of variations on the theme of penis and vagina. This is meant to show up the provincialism and prudishness of his contemporaries when measured against the past and the past which is richly alive in the Arabic language itself. And of course, everywhere that the Fereach goes on his travels, he's enraged by his countrymen's lack of literacy, and especially women's lack of literacy, of course. So Maronite priests who don't know that their Bibles are full of solecisms, uh, poets who parrot foreign phrases and don't know their own tongue, uh, monks who don't know the difference between a kamus and a kabus, a dictionary and a nightmare, um, and literary men whose, whose language is full of uh, lame metaphors and, and flattery of powerful patrons. So for Shidjah, the people who are responsible for safeguarding uh, and transmitting the literary heritage, the Turaf, are precisely those who are most ignorant of it. And this is, hence, the importance of his own work as, as a translator. Um, an internal or interlingual translator, primarily, I would say, rather than a student of Stern or Swift. And it's in this way, I think, we might say that Shadyach becomes an intellectual, which is a peculiarly modern thing to be, by reimagining the older profession of philologist. So that rather than being a sim- simply a commentator on authorized texts, he makes himself into a commentator on the world around him. And so... The ambition of marrying philology to cultural studies, which is one strand, at least, of a kind of Arabakian inheritance, finds, I think, a very plausible model in Shadyat's novel. And he wasn't, of course, merely a transmitter of archaic and amusing words. He was also, in his later capacity, as the editor of al-Jawa'ad, the publishing house, as well as the the newspaper. He was engaged in reissuing any number of classical works, including the Lisan al-Arab, and this is, I think, the intellectual project that gathers the various strands of his career as a translator of the Old Testament, a novelist, and also an editor. This project of reviving, transforming, and putting back into circulation the classical Arabic heritage. So for a Shadyaf, it's not really the influx of new words or the translation of foreign authorities that remakes language, but this kind of internal uh, seismic Shift, So his fascination with Arabic is kind of like that of an anthropologist who discovers this, this highly sophisticated alien culture and then discovers that it's his own. Um, so I would, I, I, would, I would describe this just by saying that he, he opens, he estranges his own language by opening it up to its own past, um, a past that its present speakers are largely ignorant of. And this is one of the effects, I think this is what hum- Humphrey was really talking about, um, um, that is captured by these, by these word lists and this use of, of words that he was describing. Um, um, the myriad words for... Well, it's the difficulty of that second type of word list that Humphrey was describing. Um, these myriad words for vagina types that have this strangeness in Arabic because they are untranslated, which the glosses in English, like the sprayer, the gripper the large, floppy one, um, they don't convey. And I don't, I, I don't know, Humphrey has lots of ingenious solutions for this problem. I, I would just say that it reminds us that translation rather than um, a technical feat of finding equivalencies is a cultural and historical and, and political act. Um, and I'll just finish by suggesting that it, it is this task of renewing language by archaicizing it that makes for some common ground between the Shadyak and somewhat later European modernists, like Pound and Yeats, who sought to make it new by making it old. And that one thinks immediately of Pound's The Seafarer, for example, which is his translation from the Anglo-Saxon, which invested contemporary English with the sound patterns and pose of uh, elegiac stoicism that does so much to define the modernist idiom in English. All of which is to suggest that the sock a la sock a long, strange, original book, in the words of Albert Morani, uh, can serve as a kind of model for the translators of L.A.L., encouraging them to undertake equivalent acts of estrangement and archaeology into their own language. Thank
0: you. Thank you for the Richardson.
4: You will have a handout sheet. This should be enough to go around. Does have one? Yeah, I hope we. Uh, the handout is actually. I'm, I'm not a. Uh, I'm not an Arabista. I'm a, in, in the English, French, and Comparative Literature departments of NYU, and, and myself a translator. And I was hoping maybe to get some help with the reading of this sheet. But let me let me uh, let me just uh, start by yeah, for, for me I'm I'm I mentioned in, in, in my work in French, I'm I'm a Disne a specialist in nineteenth century, and so for me this is very much a uh, a revelation of uh, 19th-century novel published in Paris in 1855, two years before Madame Bovary, two years before uh, Baudelaire's Fleur du Mal go on trial. Um, 1851 is when Nerval uh, publishes his Voyage en Orient. Um, Our author is a reader of French authors of Voyage en Orient. Uh, such as Lamartine or Chateaubriand. Um, so, um, its its nineteenth-century European context uh, uh, is is very very interesting to me. There are chapters, of course, in which uh, uh, his hero uh, travels here to England, to Hertfordshire, uh, to translate. Um, an unspecified book, uh, even briefly visits Oxford. Um, There are pages uh, about England that uh, sound almost like uh, Engels on Manchester (laughs) and the working class, uh, published in 1845, so we're roughly around the same time. Uh, Passages on Paris. Uh, pre-Hausmanized Paris, which are absolutely fascinating and which actually I would use in a uh, representations of Paris in literature course. Um, there's, there's no need to bring like Montesquieu, uh, an imaginary Persian to town, uh, to, <laughs> to, to, to create that kind of critical distanciation. Um, uh, there's just, uh, you know, there, there are bits of, uh, there are bits of uh, social history here, and I mean uh, discussions of, for example, uh, the specificities of uh, uh, French latrines uh, mm-hmm. that I haven't found mm-hmm. in Hugo or Balzac or uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the British travelers. Um, so I mean, there's uh, there's there's and 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 actually actually I think moving from lat- latrines, I guess. Um, Since we're all here to speak about a corpus and not a canon, uh, rarely have I read a work that that is this profoundly corporeal, uh, (laughs) that is uh, grounded in the body of language, its vocalizations, its sound structures, its paranomagias, uh, a a body whose verbal flesh and blood and shit and sperm and farts and belges uh, Uh, are are this physically inscribed onto the page in the form of lists and lexicographical uh, riffs. Um, To inhabit this text as a reader is to inhabit uh, an anatomy, uh, not Burton's encyclopedic anatomy of melancholy, but something closer to the to the jouissance, to the to the joyance, or even to the uh of the Rabelaisian body, uh, so beautifully analyzed by Bachtin in its relationship to an encyclopedic menopœian satire—a um, body whose polymorphous perversity, whose whose heteroglossia—that is, whose many tonguedness and other tonguedness. Uh, make it uh, the unruly and playful enemy of all monological discourses, be they institutional, political, legal, or religious. Um, das Ganze ist das falsche, Adorno liked to say. Um, holes, or totalities, are that which is false. Um, Shadyak instead gives us holes, orifices, Instead of totalized holes, that is mouths, vaginas, anuses, ears, even eyes and nostrils, blake 's inlets of perception and of gratified desire um, so what a what a pleasure then in this superb translation to come across this revived classic of, of world literature, an unsuspected textbook example of what Bakhtin called the dialogical imagination, or, or what Lukacs termed the transcendental homelessness of the novel, well illustrated by the rootless, almost diasporic errancy of both its author, Shidyak, and, uh, and uh, of its central protagonist, his comic other, or doppelganger uh, self. Um, uh, and in turn uh, as was pointed out uh, his his wife his other self we have a series of kind of doublings uh, uh, in this uh, profoundly uh, to my reading uh, bisexual or even hermaphroditic uh, novel Um, um, of course the question came up um are we going to call this a novel or not? Um, um, it is to a certain extent in, in, in Bakhtin's sort of account of, of, of the novel as as this kind of genre busting and uh, as we've seen here also gender gender busting um, um, kind of creation. Um, but uh He himself, the the author speaks of how he cobbled it together and pieced it together. It's a kind of assemblage. It's a collage. uh, It's uh, um, um, incessantly uh, plural. um, Has elements of uh, travelogues in it. There's a a kind of uh, uh, Odyssean uh, trajectory to it. what interested me in, in portions of the travelogue is that one can see. And I'd be interested in this in terms of, to hear from the Arabists in terms of uh, uh, the history of this. But one thing that I'm very interested in is, is sort of the emergence of descriptive pra- practices as they, as they migrate from, from the sciences into the novel and how uh, description, in, at least in the classic realist novel, becomes uh, a staple uh, of it. This novel seems to have a it seems to have a very ambivalent relationship to uh, description. There, there are moments where he says, "This is this is how the Franks would describe a, a donkey," uh, and this is how uh, the Arabs would describe a donkey, and and uh, you know, he quotes Chateaubriand. Uh, Quotes Lamartine, uh, giving what he seems to be satirizing as uh, too much trivial detail or, you know? Um, but but I, I see this. It's, it's very, very interesting in terms of if, uh, in, in terms of if you want to talk about sort of the emergence of realism. Yeah? Just two minutes. Oh, OK, this question of, uh, this question of uh, description. Uh, another thing, just very quickly, is um, uh, this could be a Christopher Roman. Uh, Bildungsroman, in other words, in which we see the person who uh, 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 the course uh, towards becoming a writer that is actually being uh, dramatized by the hero's uh, uh, bildung. It can also, obviously, be read by uh, uh, like an autobiography. But I think the crucial thing here too is the way that the uh, uh, the autobiography tends to tends to move more in the direction of what uh, Michel Beaujour calls the autoportrait, because the, the real organization of this uh, text is not narrative, but topical, uh, rhetorical. Uh, there, there are beautiful moments of essayistic moments, the moment on snow, for example. You know? And to, extent, to the extent that it is topically o- uh, oriented, I think it, it's, it then goes much more into this tradition of autoportrait, its deepest principle and, is, and we've been talking about throughout the, throughout the uh, tradition of classical a- Arabic literature, the supremacy accorded to poetry. And in fact, I think what's, what's this tension between sort of uh, the narrative thrust of it and at, at, at every moment that's being kind of superseded by a kind of uh, po- uh, poetization um, in a very Jacobsonian sense that the the, the, the paradigmatic uh, is at every moment sort of canceling out uh, the syntagmatic uh, organization uh, on uh, a kind of the principle of rhyme and uh, uh, semantic uh, and synonyms. Uh, last point um, actually for a student of the 19th century is to put this uh, Uh, who put this work in the context of the poem en prose, the prose poem. Uh, The the rhyme prose, uh, the sag and the majimat here, I think, uh, which are brilliantly translated, sometimes your rhyme prose almost reads like Byron's Don Jew, and it has that kind of Jolting, jo- uh, jovial, uh, jovial quality to it, but uh, and that that's another thing for maybe comparatives to think about. Uh, it's uh, this tradition called uh this kind of rhyme prose that you can also find in classical Chinese literature, Indian literature, um, and here now in Arabic literature. And uh, you know how this is also going together uh, is absolutely that, 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 that this uh, work is absolutely. Uh, Contemporary with the development of the French uh, prose poem. Um, last point, very quickly, I want to make. Maybe we can uh, leave this sheet for for, for discussion section. Is um, as as I think all of the uh, all of the other talks were were making clear. Um, the author of this work is a translator. Um, although it is never really comes through that he was actually a translator of the Bible. Uh, that's not mentioned. It's, uh, its hero, of course, is uh, also a translator. Actually, he starts out as a copyist uh, in manuscript culture and then moves into a translator within print culture. That's a very, very interesting thing to also observe. But uh, translation. Uh, does not only take place between languages. There are swatches of Voltaire that are translated within this, uh, within this text. But as everybody's been hinting, uh, the real, the really interesting area of translation is, of course, within language, right? Uh, by this kind of metonymic uh, and metaphoric sort of slippage uh, between words. Uh, one of the most, one the the loveliest moment, and I'll, I'll kind of stop on this is. Uh, the, there's, a, there's a moment in volume three where uh, the author translates the Arabic word for translation into oniromancy or dream uh, interpretation, as explained in the note, using the trope of uh, metathesis and taking the root RB as in tarib. Uh, which I take it means to translate in Arabic, and turning it into B-R, Muabir, uh, uh, am I getting it right? Uh, and this, this is just an amazing moment where he's actually, uh, metathetically, as it were, uh, translating translation into dream interpretation, so that this makes us sort of, I mean, the, the, the satirical point is that to translate the Bible which is understood, we, uh, you know, is actually to engage in a huge project of dream interpretation. We are then given the dreams that are subsequently subjected to the most, uh, uh, to, to absolutely uh, um, <laughs> obscene proto-Freudian uh, uh, interpretations. But let me stop there, and maybe we can come up uh, Um, Maybe there'll be time to look at this sheet, which is uh, the only time in the entire four volumes where uh, within the Arabic text, a poem in Roman letters appears and that is then subjected to translation, if there's time. Thank you.
0: Thank you all for a brilliant panel on lego, uh, um, I wish we we could, we could talk, have a whole, we could have a whole conference But, but now it's my great pleasure to to introduce to you, uh, invite to the podium, Professor Roger Allen. Um, I said t- today that my first. Arabic teacher in the, in the room, Al, as Alan Jones said. My latest Arabic teacher is standing behind me. Uh, I spent the summer reading uh, what he said in Hisham's Thomas. Uh, it was a wonderful read. Uh, so Roger's done a great service to us. He's, he's reserviced his translation and done a lot of work on his uh, translation of um, a period of time which he published in the early 70s, which was his PhD at Oxford. Um, yep. and and giving us another masterpiece
5: at the end of the 19th century. Thank you, you, Phil. Uh, My name's Roger Allen, and uh, as several people in the room know to their cost, uh, I have been teaching Arabic and comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania 47 years now. (laughs) I have retired, sort of. Um, (laughs) The text I'm dealing with uh, is has the distinction, I think, of being the most modern, pre-modern text in the Library of Arabic Literature series. Uh, The author died in 1930. The interesting thing for me about this particular project is that it's not based on a book. It's based on the series of newspaper articles which precede the publication of what is regarded as one of the most important bridge works in the creation of a tradition of modern Arabic narrative, and I, w- I will avoid the N-word novel um, for the time being, at least. What that leads me to suggest is that once this these two volumes come out the Arabic of it may be at least as important as the English, if not more so. Uh, I've had to come up with a new title for this project, and the reason for that is, as uh, Philip Kennedy has just adumbrated to, um, I first encountered this text in 1948. Uh, 1948, well, 1964, <laughs> 1964, and um, I would have been six in 1948. <laughs> uh, 1964, immediately after the arrival here of Mustafa Badawi, to whom modern Arabic literature owes an enormous amount, and um, he persuaded me to do what became the first Oxford doctorate in modern Arabic literature in 1968. Uh, That doctorate later became uh, a book published twice, the last time in 1992, as a celebration for uh, Dr. Badawi for his retirement. Beyond that, uh, my Egyptian colleague, Professor Gaber Asfour, recently uh, Minister of Culture, but now no longer Minister of Culture um, in Egypt, asked me to prepare the complete works of this author which I published in 2002. So between the English version and its title and the Arabic text and its title, the question arose when LAL approached me. He said, well, what exactly am I supposed to do, which I haven't somehow already done? And here's where this new title and this new project comes in. Because I've known all along that the process of preparing... This book involved the author in a great deal of editing uh, in fairly drastic ways the text which he originally published over a four year period in the family newspaper, which is called Misbah Sharq. And in 1966, it took me three months to persuade the Ministry of the Interior of Egypt to allow me to have access to the newspaper, which I eventually did. Um, There's another story behind that, which I won't bore you with now. But you can imagine my surprise. Many of you who have done doctorates will know the surprise when you're doing a project and suddenly something totally unexpected happens. So I am in the citadel in Cairo. Uh, with the windows open, it's freezing cold. Reading my way through Misbah Sharq, starting diligently with the first issue, and I get to an issue, and there suddenly is an article beginning Qala Isa ibn Hisham. This is either that or Hadithna Ayissa ibn Hisham, it's the traditional way in which this classical genre of the Maqama starts at the hands of Al Hamadani, Bidi'ah Al Hamadani. To my astonishment, it's not the first chapter of the book that I've been studying and uh, have been uh, looking at for a very long time. Not only that, there are four episodes which precede what is actually becoming the first chapter of this book, and they're all about the war in the Sudan. Because the war in the Sudan at that time is the number one issue. Because we're in the British occupation of Egypt, 1882 onwards, we're in the British occupation of Egypt, and the British army is in the Sudan, and they're in charge, and the Egyptian army is doing all the dirty work. And so, Muelihe, our author, has a series of four articles about the Sudanese war. Before the actual content of the book even starts. So my point is that, OK, Morelli comes along, and after he's closed down the family newspaper after a, a, a social scandal in 1903, he sets about revising his episodes. He <coughs> decides to leave all that out. There is no mention of the war in Sudan in the book at all. It's not. The word Sudan does not appear in Hadith, Aesab and Hisham, the book. Uh, the question is, well, what's the process that is going on? So that's one thing. And I've got here, there's a, there's a wonderful uh, part which is now going to be in here, which is nowhere. It's never been published before. An Egyptian newspaper writer <coughs> is on vacation in Switzerland. And he's going to a spa, and he meets the Egyptian minister of war who's also at the spa. So he inquires discreetly as to why the Egyptian minister of war is actually in the spa. And the Egyptian minister of war Well, I'm I'm taking the waters, of course. And the newspaper says, don't you really need to be in touch with people about what's going on in Sudan? He says, oh, no, we've got telegraphs and things now. And the reporter goes through everything that's happening in Sudan. You probably don't know about this. The Fashoda incident, where the English and French forces collide with each other. And he, can't, he doesn't even know where Fashoda is. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh yeah, well, Fashoda's near, near Aswan, so that's, that's easy to deal with. Well, and the, the reporter says it's 400 miles away from Aswan, and goes through all this, and the, the newspaper uh, reporter lands up tearing his hair out. So what's going on is that this series of episodes is taken by the author, heavily edited, excluding a whole lot of material to publish Hadith Isa ibn Hisham in 1907, first edition, which immediately becomes a bestseller. It, it, it sells out very quickly. There's a second edition. There's a third edition. And then there's a pause. And then there's a fourth edition. Now, the fourth edition is, for me, a disaster because it's chosen as a school textbook for the Thanawiyya Amma in Egypt. And obviously somebody says to hey, you know, there's some stuff in here I think you ought to leave out. More stuff to leave out. Well, guess what? It's all back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you an example. Okay. Here's something which is not in any edition after the fourth. It's a whole chapter about Anecdotes about Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali Pasha, the great, whose place is in heaven, Janet Macan, right? was the marvel of his age. He was a shrewd man, possessed of a lofty ambition, far-sightedness, and a firm grasp of management. It was from his period that Muhammad Ali inherited the unnerving shout that never left him hereafter. In his council chamber, he used to roar like a lion. The effect was enough to stop your heart beating. It caused the death of a European painter for whom the late master was sitting for a portrait. They warned this painter in advance, but the shout was so loud that the poor man couldn't stand it. He died on the spot. Now, where will you encounter shouts like that in Men of Egypt Today?
1: Okay.
5: So, what happened is, is that from the fourth edition onwards, and there are nine editions of this book, this is a hugely influential and important book, and it's also one, as I know from my visits to Egypt, ask any Egyptian about Hadith Arsene and the Nisham and said I had to read it in school. <laughs> it's like, I tend to feel unfortunately about Chaucer. Chaucer and O-levels. Marion, you probably remember this. Chaucer and O-levels. And you read all the boring ones. Yes. <laughs> because they've all got to uh, have footnotes, which you were supposed to... Anyway, that's a whole other story. But. So in 2002, I produced a new version of Hadith, Aisaf and Hisham for Egypt, and it was published by the Supreme Council for Culture. So along comes LAL, and I have to decide, well, what am I going to do? So what I've done is totally subversive, I've said I'm not going to deal with any of the book versions of Hadith A7 Nisham, and this new version is only the entire set of newspaper articles originally published in the Mualahi newspaper, uh, including everything that's been excluded, and, of course, the above all, the visit to Paris. And I'll just finish by reading to you the wonderful section where... The major characters visit the Egypt exhibit in Paris. And if I tell you the title of it Iftira Al-Iftira'a al-Watan, which means slandering the homeland. When we got inside, we almost died of shock. We were obviously inside a gaming room, a place for music and entertainment. The curtain was drawn back to reveal a troop of lewd women Who started belly dancing, using all kinds of disgusting gestures and movements. We rushed for the door, our faces moist with tears of remorse and sheer embarrassment. As we hurried out, we kept covering our faces with hands and sleeves, doing our utmost to conveal any association with Egypt, our homeland, and people and to rid ourselves of the stain of such an utterly vile display, one that only served to make other people look down on Egypt with contempt. We rushed to put as much distance as possible between ourselves and this awful spectacle, and to reject such a dreadful sight, we swore an oath that we would never pass by this sector of the the exhibition again. So this whole project, of course, raises at least one dilemma, which is I am subverting, perhaps, the best intentions of the author. Because the author went through and carefully edited his text, perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps with the idea of doing some of the things we've been talking about here, which is turning a series of newspaper articles into something which has that kind of... Structure and sequence which might lead you to believe that it's a contribution towards the uh, development of narrative genre which were to come after it. It is certainly regarded as, and I've often called it, a bridge work. You see, I like to have that term. I don't think it's a novel, but, you know, we're talking about novels. I don't like using the term novel. I prefer to call it a narrative. It's a narrative. It's a narrative type. It looks forwards, it looks backwards. It's a bridge. Thank you.
0: Thank you, so, at yeah. we've, we've, thank you all of you, for a, for a wonderful panel. We, we, sh- we don't have much time, and in fact, we have no time at all if we stick to the schedule, but we should at least have five minutes of discussion, five to ten. Very helpful. Yes. Uh,
5: I have really to add a footnote. Maybe some of you on the panel know of it, but maybe the audience does not know about it. Because the question was about genre, whether it's a novel or not. And I want to mention a book by the late novelist and critic, Rabu Ashur, on Sharia, in which she refers to his book as the first novel in Arabic literature whether we agree with her or not, that's up to you. But it's an important book because she shows how the uh, history of literary criticism was so bound with models in Europe, the mainstream novel, meaning the realistic novel, that they could not see this work as a novel.
3: It's an interesting book and its relationship. to yeah. And I would just mention that uh, since he's here, Abdul Fattah Kilita also has a, a, right. an essay in which you talk about the, the pros and cons of considering this as the first Arabic novel, and the reasons why one might, and the consequences for that.: you know. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, if I could just say just very briefly, since I was the one who, who brought that up and, and, and suggested that it was a novel, um, of course, you know, in, in the 20th century, it, it can't be said to have been hugely influential for Arab writers of novels so it's it's somewhat in an optative mode that I was suggesting it was a novel because it would be very interesting if it was considered to be the first novel I think it would be in in some cases a much more productive certainly a much more productive model than the ones that we, the ones that we have, like Zainab and etc. etc. Awdat al or whatever some of the other, um, sometimes referred to as the first novels in Arabic, which are much less interesting and go and, and lead us to much less interesting places, I think. So that's one of the reasons why I would have thought t- calling it a novel could be a could be a useful uh, intervention, I suppose. But if I may just say something?
5: Dostoevsky, when you wrote, you know. People didn't consider his writing as a novel. You know, they didn't accept it because it was polyphonic and so on. So this sometimes happens in the history of literature. It's recognized after
3: retrospectively. That. Sure.
4: Well, I would I would go f- even further. I, I would really love to play with calling this a prose poem um, or a prosometrum because I think that its deep deep structures are in fact. Uh, poetic. I mean, that, that verticality of a list, the, the dominance of rhyme, the way in which narrative is constantly being eroded, I mean, or even notions of character, the, 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 the sort of aversion to description and to certain kinds of uh, realism. I mean, that's, that's just maybe, you know, that comes from, I, I, I teach courses on the poem en prose, and I'm just struck at, uh, by by that we that we could we could actually get rid of the whole question of you know it's 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 novelness by, by going in that direction. Yeah. But,
2: but could I would. I don't quite understand why it's so so, so important to put a label on it, mm-hmm. and particularly mm-hmm. that label. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine that Shadiak himself thought of himself as writing something that would fit what he knew of as the novel. You he in fact he, he satirizes, as uh, you pointed out, he satirizes the Western novel. Mm-hmm. He he says, uh, the 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 the, the uh, a woman leaving her house at ten o'clock in the morning, uh, with the rain coming down hard, and returning two hours later with her little dog is a matter of immense interest to them. Yeah. And this, he's clearly referring to some novel that he's read. This is, right? is Valéry
4: saying, I could never write La Marquise sortie à Saint-Cœur, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's where. I thank you for explaining the reference. Um, and, and I think my impression was, as I was reading through it, was this was a man who wanted to write a book, and he wanted to write it exactly the way that he wanted to write it. And he did, though he may have all sorts of unconscious models in his mind, um, it was an enterprise... It was not trammelled by notions of what it should be and how it should be regarded and what it should be called.
0: The last comment? No, no more comments. Yeah, well, I'll just
5: say, you know, those who know know that I've written a book called The Arabic Novel, uh, in two editions, and the reason why I haven't updated it is precisely for what I say. I, I have now problems with deciding what exactly it is we want to talk about when we're using that particular generic term, and it, it, that it has become so varied in terms of the way one analyses it and theorises it that that becomes a problem, and even more of a problem in a transcultural context.
1: Okay. Well, thank you all. Thank you.